This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. This psalm is a wonderful psalm. I love the psalms in general. They're great. I think about them quite a bit. I use them in my ministry quite a bit. If you've ever met with me, we've talked about them quite a bit. They're great to elevate our hearts to worship God. They're great to use as prayers to God. If we're not sure what to pray about, the Psalms are filled with prayers to God, about God, and about our circumstances. The Psalms are wonderful. In, in the heading of this Psalm, we read that it's a Psalm of Ascents. There are 15 Psalms of Ascents, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Those are all the Psalms of Ascents. And no one knows for sure, but it's, it's believed that Jewish pilgrims would sing these songs in succession as they made their way to Jerusalem to climb the mountain, to worship at the temple. They would sing as they ascended to the temple to worship God. And so they are helpful to, helpful to us to worship God. And this particular song was written by David, as it says in the heading, who composed at least 73 of the Psalms. Uh, he was a musician. He was a warrior. He was a king. And God describes him as a man after God's own heart. For many, Psalm 131 is a very endearing psalm. It's a very sweet passage. It's so short that it can be easy to meditate on, to reflect upon. It has its poetry, so it has a real sweet cadence to it and really rhythmic, and so we can set our minds to it and perhaps memorize it pretty simply. It also, and perhaps most endearing to us, it paints a real sweet picture of a young child at rest in her mother's arms, contented. And I think that appeals to a lot of us. In summary, here's the psalm. Here's the cliff note version. Here's a man who loves God, who trusts God, whose hope is in God, and as such, he disciplined himself to make less of himself and much of God, which instilled in him a quietness in his soul. Really, it's a kind of a quietness that we all desire, which is why I think this psalm really appeals to many of us. Charles Spurgeon said about this psalm, I quote him, he says, it's one of the shortest psalms to read and one of the longest to learn. Unquote. At the heart of the psalm is a quiet soul, a soul that's at peace, that's at rest. And for many of us, that kind of rest and peace can seem unattainable or even fleeting or even not real, like it's a fairy tale. And I think that's why Spurgeon said it's one of the longest to learn, because it requires our active perseverance. It requires our active faith, our active hope. It requires an active trust in God. To have the kind of quietness David writes about here requires what some call spiritual sweat. It's exercising ourselves spiritually so that we can discipline ourselves to have here what David talks about, a quiet soul. So while we may truly be blessed by what David is speaking about, because we all want it. We may brush by too quickly about, though, how we got it. 
And I think there's a lot here in these words that should challenge us and give us pause. Because we live in a time and a place where rest seems really unattainable. We are constantly stimulated by news, by amusement, by entertainment. We're constantly reminded that we need to earn more, especially here in the Bay Area. We need to earn more, have more, do more, be more. Rest from the endless noise of our culture, from the pressures of life, from the difficulties of relationships. Rest from suffering and from pain. Rest can seem out of reach. And rather than sitting quietly at the feet of our Savior, at the feet of the one who gives rest, we busy ourselves trying to find rest because we want help right now. And I get it. When you're uneasy, you're looking for an immediate solution. But let me tell you, David was a real man with real problems. And he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul in the face of all that he was going through. It's quiet. And that he actively pursued to cultivate his heart for that quietness. Here's a man fleeing for his life at times, and he says, it's all good. Here's a man fleeing for his life, and he says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. I'm not afraid. Psalm 27. Here's a man at times fleeing for his life, and he says, I'm content. Psalm 23. Here's a man who says, I'm at rest in my mom's arms. It's okay. See, at times in my life, I have been afraid for my family, for my future, for my finances, and I've been a mess. And I've sought to fix those things. I've sought to fix those things to quiet my own soul. But I will tell you that sitting myself and humbling myself under the word of God, meditating on the nature and character of God, gave me the rest that I sought. And while the turbulence in my life only seemed to continue on even to this very day, I continue to fight for that rest. As we look closely this morning at the text, I believe we'll see a description of David's thought process of what, of what and how, what rest looks like in his life, which for some of us and many of us may serve as a prescription as we too, as we too seek rest for our souls in the midst of all the various forms of noise that go on in our lives. We'll just follow the psalm, the flow of it, from verses one, two, th- from verses one through three, and I think there are, within it we'll find four helpful hooks to just kind of hang our hats on as we make our way through it. First hook in your outlines, if you have one, is the premise of a quiet soul, the premise of a quiet soul, or the foundation of a quiet soul. I think we see the foundation here in really the first two words that David utters and the last words that he utters. He starts the psalm with, O Lord, with Yahweh. He immediately submits himself to the name of God, to the character of God, to the nature of God. And then he ends the psalm with, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And then everything in between there is sandwiched, I think, based off of those two statements. His hope in the Lord is foundational. 
And what we build on matters. For David, he built a quiet soul on the foundation of his hope in God. And what we build on matters, and Jesus will say as much in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. He, will, he speaks about a man who builds his house on the foundation of sand. He speaks of a man who built his house on the foundation of a rock. And when the rains came down and the floods came up, what happened to the man on the sand? Right off his house goes. What happened to the man who built his house on the rock? Nothing. Nothing. Foundations matter. And without a good foundation, every structure is in trouble. Ask the people living in San Francisco who live on the Millennium Towers. Nine years after it was built, it sunk into the ground 18 inches and tilted to the west. The people living in those condominiums know a foundation matters. <laughs> Foundations are important, and how we build the quietness in our soul, how we seek for it, it matters how we build upon it. The foundation for David's rest and quietness is not the shifting sands of time. It's not the shifting sands of circumstances. But his foundation for a quiet soul is God himself. David's hope, his trust, his confidence is in, he calls it out, Yahweh, the name of the Lord, the God who said, I am who I am, to Moses. The first words out of his mouth from David are to acknowledge his creator, to acknowledge his redeemer, to acknowledge the one before whom he sits, to acknowledge the one before whom he moves and lives and has his being. I think that's significant for us to see. The foundation of David's quest for rest, for quiet, for peace, begins and ends with Yahweh, the Lord. His hope and the nature and character and faithfulness of the great I Am. His confidence in the God who proclaimed about himself in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is his God. This is the God upon whom he stands and bases everything that will follow in his life off of that truth. A truth that is unshifting, unwavering. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not change. So David stands on that for everything that goes on in his life. Biblical hope is not based upon wishes. A lot of us today, to get practical, will hope that the 49ers win. <laughs> See? And sadly, a lot of us will have our whole demeanor change throughout the course of the game. Right? It will go up and down the whole time. We will become different people. <laughs> Why? Because our hope for a good day is based on the outcome of a football game. And let me tell you, I'm with you. I hope the Niners win. <laughs> I will be right there with you struggling to be the same guy I am right now 
as I am, as I will be in the third quarter. It shouldn't affect who I am. But the crazy thing about sports is it does. It's weird. You know, I have a theory. This is off, off topic. I have a theory. We're worshipful people. We're made to worship, right? And we will worship whatever's in front of us if it's not God himself. And sports is worship, man. We sit under the banner of red and gold and we worship. We raise our hands and we rejoice. Who raises their hands in here? Raise your hand if you raise your hand in here. (laughs) Okay, how many of us raise our hands when they score a touchdown? All of you raise your hand, there you go, yeah. You know who you are, right? It's weird, we worship, because we're made to worship, but our worship is meant for the Lord. Our hope is not meant in the outcome of this football game. It's meant to be rooted and firm in Christ, who is our rock, right? Biblical hope is not based on the shifting sands of an election cycle. If we can just get the right person into office, well, I'll feel a little more easy about my future, right? That can be how we think. Biblical hope is the idea of waiting in expectation for God to do what he says he will do and trusting that he will do it in his time and in his way according to his will. That's biblical hope. Knowing that God will do it The problem for us at times can be, when are you going to do it? And that makes waiting hard. That makes humbling ourselves before God hard, because life is real right now. And we want something from God. And it's hard to wait. But biblical hope is waiting upon the one who will respond when he's ready. And he will act, and he will move, and it will be good, and it will be perfect. Why? Because he's good, and he's perfect, and he's faithful. So you build your hope on that truth. That no matter what your circumstances are like, you interpret them through that. That God is faithful, and my hope is in that. That is biblical hope. In spite of all that's going on around him, David trusts in the one who holds him in the palm of his hands, Psalm 139, verse 10, written by David. In spite of all that's going on around him, he trusts in the one who will lead him through the valley of the shadow of death. He's not trying to lead himself through it, worried about what will come out of the shadows. He's confident in the one who will lead him because he's a good shepherd. He's not afraid when his enemies encamp around him in Psalm 27. Why? because he says, the Lord is my stronghold. I'm not afraid. He's at rest. He's at peace. He's quiet in his soul because he trusts in the one who is the Almighty. Biblical hope serves as an anchor for our souls in the midst of the turbulence of life. Is your hope for joy? Is your hope for peace? Is your hope for financial security? Is it anchored to the shifting sands of the world and the whims of people? Or is your hope anchored to Christ? When quietness in our souls seems elusive, 
Ask yourself, what is the foundation I'm seeking to build my hope on? What is the foundation upon which I'm seeking to build rest on, quietness on? Is it upon the Lord or upon other things? For David, his hope was in the Lord. And that lays the foundation upon which he cultivates a quiet soul. Verse 2, the posture of a quiet soul. I think David takes an unusual turn here in that we see the result of a quiet soul first. In verse 2, he says, I have cultivated and quieted up my soul. But in verse 1, he says, here's what it looks like. So he starts with, here's what it looks like before he goes to how I got there. He says, I, my heart is not lifted up. I do not occupy myself, uh, uh, my, pardon me, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He says, my heart is not lifted up. My heart is not lifted up. The heart in the Hebrew refers to the inner person, the mind, the will. You've heard us say from the pulpit before that it's our operating system. It what, it's what makes us tick. The verb to be lifted up means to be proud, to exalt, to raise up high. It can be used both in the positive and the negative sense. It's used in the negative sense in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, referring to King Uzziah, who was a good and faithful king in Judah. It says this about him, though, in verse 16, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. David, at his core, refuses to be arrogant before God. He's adopting a posture of humility before God. He's refusing to exalt himself above God. He knows his place. He knows he is the creature. And he lives before the creator, underneath the creator. And David can assume that posture because his confidence is not in himself or in others. His confidence and his hope and his trust is in God. In Psalm 23, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Not I am shepherding myself through the valley of the shadow of death. I am the one leading beside still waters. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who feeds me. He's the one who cares for me. He's the one who leads me by still waters. He's the one who leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows his place. He knows his place is to humble himself before God. He knows the one who knows best. Next, he says, nearly in the same vein, my eyes are not raised too high. While the heart lifted suggests a high opinion of oneself, eyes that are elevated connote the idea of looking down your nose at someone. Right? Just kind of like, yeah, you guys are okay. Right? I'm up here, you're down there. That's the idea, looking down on people. The Proverbs are pretty clear. God hates proud-looking eyes. He hates it. Proverbs 6, verse 17, he lists seven things he hates, and it starts with proud eyes. He hates it. He equates proud eyes in, in Proverbs 30 with the wicked. Proud eyes denigrate 
fellow image bearers. Proud eyes mock fellow image bearers. Proud eyes treat fellow image bearers as objects of lust. Proud eyes judge fellow image bearers because they're not like me. Because I read my Bible every day. They don't. Proud eyes fail to love the unlovely. Proud eyes fail to acknowledge they need to love their neighbor, no matter who their neighbor is. Proud eyes. David is saying he does not regard himself as superior to others, that before his fellow man, he remains a humble person, which is consistent, brothers and sisters, with our own calling as Christians. In Philippians 2, verse 3, Paul writes to the church at Philippi and he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do not lift up your eye. Do not lift up your heart. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. That is the kind of posture we are to adopt as followers of Christ, who he'll later say, you should have this mind in yourselves, a humble mind, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by stepping aside from glory and putting on flesh, becoming a man, living as a man, dying the death you deserve. He says, that's the humility you're to have. You have the mind of Christ to be humble. And that kind of humility before others is a posture, speaking about David here, that is in keeping with a man whose confidence for love, for acceptance, for contentment, for joy, comes from his hope in the Lord and all of God's promises to him. He does not need to make himself feel better by looking down on someone else because they're dressed differently than he is. He doesn't need to denigrate his fellow man to make himself feel better about himself. He knows who he is in the economy of God. He knows he's a sheep of God's. He knows he is loved by God. He does not need to treat someone else rudely so he can feel better about himself. God has given him all that he needs. God has given you all you need in Christ Jesus. It is the proud, those who exalt themselves, it is the proud who are self-righteous and think more highly of themselves than they should. It is the proud, James chapter four, verse six says, it is the proud whom God actively opposes. He actively resists the proud. When our lives are upside down and our souls are restless, it should give us pause to examine our hearts and ask, have I pit myself against God and how I'm responding to this circumstance? Have I elevated my wants and desires above my worship of God? Is my soul uneasy because I long for acceptance from others? Am I at odds with my fellow man because I've made much of myself 
and little of my brother, little of my sister. God hates pride. But, the scriptures say in James 4, verse 6, that he gives grace to the humble. In fact, it says he gives greater grace, he gives more grace to the humble. Else, when the scriptures, it'll say that his grace, his great grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient. A humble posture before God puts us in the tender care of our good shepherd. It puts us at the, the foot of God where we say, not my will, your will be done. That is a humble posture. And lastly, he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too wonderful for me. To occupy in the Hebrew literally means to, to walk, to go, to travel. Great and wonderful in the Hebrew mean great and wonderful. Wonderful can also mean difficult. So I could easily paraphrase what he's saying here by saying this. I'm not going to travel down roads that seek to understand the why behind the what because I'm confident that God knows what he's doing and I will trust him. So much of our uneasiness, our restlessness, is to seek to understand the why. The why. Sometimes that answer is easy because you blew it, that's why. Because you sinned, that's why. Sometimes the why is someone sinned against you and that's why I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing. But sometimes the why is we don't know why. Disease comes our way. We face circumstances that we have no understanding of how or why we're in those circumstances. Job is the classic example. You all sure are familiar with the story of Job. Here's the most righteous man to ever walk the face of the earth before Jesus. And he's stricken with suffering. Agony. His friends are no help to him. They say, you must have done something wrong. He's like, I've done nothing wrong. But what he eventually says is, but now I demand an audience with God to understand why I'm going through this. And God, in his graciousness to him, responds. He doesn't always respond to us. Maybe for the better, because it says in James 38, he responded in a whirlwind. I picture like a tornado showed up and God's talking to him in a tornado. But Job 38 through 42 is this wonderful autobiography about God. God is telling him, this is who I am. And Job listens. And then in Job 42, he humbles himself. And he says, I'd heard about you. And I've seen you. I've seen you. And he understood. He understood. Because God's basic answer to him was, I'm God. And I have my purposes. That was his only answer. I'm God. I have my purposes. And Job accepts his answer and responds in humility. David knows he is finite and that God is infinite. David knows the hidden things belong to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And that God has revealed the things we need to know. And he's hidden from us the things we don't need to concern ourselves with. 
David understands that. And life's providence is he's not seeking to understand the mind of God. He's not seeking to understand the purposes of God. He's not seeking to understand the intentions of God. He's adopted a posture of humility before God that trusts God and submits to God because of what he knows about God. He knows God is faithful. And no matter what he's he's facing, he knows that in God's faithfulness, God will see him through it. It may not go the way he hoped or he wanted, but he knows God is faithful. And in God's faithfulness, God will see him through. And it's good for us to hear this because we live in a time where it's really hard to see God's purposes. You look at all that's going on around us in our own culture, around the world, and we just go, what are you doing, God? And sometimes that can lead to fear. It can lead to worry. We can be anxious in our hearts, unsure of what is going on, wanting to control it, wanting to fix it. And that can reign in our hearts. And David says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. Let me say, sort of tangentially, that David is not our hero here. He will eventually, notoriously, and mightily fail at all of this. Lying, deceiving, murdering, committing adultery, on and on the list goes. It's as if he's not even the same man who wrote Psalm 131. But then in his failure, God also through him produced wonderful psalms of forgiveness and repentance that we use and read today because it's reminded of that God is a God who forgives. So David is not our hero here, but it can be easy because he failed to say, well, then what good is all this? It didn't work for David. Eventually, this guy falls apart. The point isn't to look to David. He is not our foolproof solution. (laughs) The encouragement to us is to place our hope in the greater David, the one who humbled himself to the will of his father and stepped aside from glory and put on flesh, lived the life you can't live, died the death you deserve, but now sits highly exalted at the right hand of God the Father, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's in him we place our hope for this life and for the next. It's because of him and our love for him that we walk in a manner that's pleasing to him. And that means being humble before God and with one another. A quiet soul begins with hope in the Lord and produces humility before God. Hook number three, the process of a quiet soul. The process of a quiet soul. Verse two, he says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. In verse one, David begins with the three statements in the negative. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too wonderful for me. And then here he says, surely, in the ESV, or but. It can also be translated, no, no, to emphasize what he's going to say next. And we do some of that. We talk that way. 
Someone's gonna ask you, you're coming over to the game tonight, right? You're gonna go, oh, no, 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 yeah, I'll be there. Right? We talk that way. We use the no to accentuate the yes. It's a commitment, I'm gonna be there, I'm bringing the chips, yeah. David in a similar vein is doing the same thing. No, yes. One commentator said it's like an oath he's taking, like a death oath, right? If I have not calmed and quieted my soul, then may you know, the heavens fall on me. That's the emphasis that he's placing in here. But surely, no, he is determined to quiet his soul. And we all want that in our best moments and in our worst moments. We all want rest in our souls. And David is determined, as far as it's up to him, to do it. The next he says, surely I have calmed and quiet my soul. No, this is, this is a personal discipline. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I've done it. That's the, tenth, that's the meaning of the verb there. I did it. Not God has quieted me. Not hope has quieted me. Not rest. Not humility. The verb implies David is the one who's cultivating the quietness of his soul. We see then it's a persevering discipline. He says his psalm, I have calmed and quieted my soul, which implies that it was not calm and quiet. He's worked towards that end. And he, the verb tense implies that it is still that way. He's worked that way, and he's still working to keep it that way. To calm in the Hebrew is to compose or cultivate. It literally carries the idea of leveling something off. One commentator says it's like bulldozing the turbulence in your heart. It also carries with it the idea of plowing a field and preparing it for harvest. When the ground is hard and unusable, a farmer must cultivate the ground to make it usable for harvest. But he can't use his bare hands. He has to use tools to do that. He gets out a spade and he starts smashing the hard ground to soften it up. He starts pulling away the rocks to make it smoother soil. He gets his plow out to till the soil. He fertilizes it. He waters it. We know elsewhere in Scripture that says, and it's the Lord who gives the increase, but you still got to do all the cultivating. Right? We plant. But whether or not stuff comes up is up to God. David says, I have calmed and composed and cultivated the ground of his, the ground of his soul. He's done that. David has quieted his soul. The Hebrew word here means to be still, to be motionless, to be quiet. And when I thought of to be motionless as I was preparing for this message, it reminded me of a few years ago, I went up to Lake Almanor with my family. And it, you'd wake up early in the morning, you'd look out on the lake, and it's motionless. It's like glass, it's like a mirror. And the slightest effect on that, the slightest pebble dropped in that would create wakes, even the smallest ones, and kind of ruin the, that cool vibe of it being motionless. 
and all the jet skis go through and right, ruin it. David is saying that his soul is still. There are no ripples, even though the jet skis are pouring through his soul. It's rippleless. So what has he done? He didn't just wake up calm and quiet. As I said, the verb tense implies that he was active, active in cultivating it, active in cultivating the stillness in his soul. He had to learn to be this way. Elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul says the same thing. In Philippians 4, verse 11, he says, I have learned to be content, which implies what? I wasn't. This is the apostle Paul, right? A spiritual giant as we look at him. He says, I have to learn to be this way. To learn. The quiet soul, brothers and sisters, is a product of constantly cultivating the soil of our hearts with biblical truth. And I think far too many of us, myself included, take that reality far too casually. The Apostle Paul will tell, will tell his dear friend and young pastor Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.7, he will tell him, discipline yourself, Tim. Discipline yourself, young man, for godliness. Discipline yourself for godliness. The idea behind this word discipline in the Greek is to vigorously exercise, to vigorously train your heart for godliness. to pursue Christ at all times. And I know every one of us in here understands what it means to train vigorously. Some of you in here are Spartan racers, which means you've trained your bodies to run through hills and mountains and water at ungodly altitudes, but you've trained yourself to do it. Why? Because you want a little metal around your neck <laughs> and put a sticker on your car but you train vigorously for that. A lot of us go to the gym and we train vigorously to make sure age doesn't catch up with us. I'm one of those. I, I, I've learned to discipline myself to get up in the morning to go do what I wanna do, which has been convicting for me because if I'm gonna go do that, then I sure as well better be disciplining myself for godliness at least as hard as I'm doing that. Ideally, harder than I'm doing that. That's vigorously training. We, we need to work hard at that. Di spiritual discipline is necessary. Is necessary because the scriptures tell us there is a battle going on in our hearts. Galatians 5.17 says the flesh wrestles against the spirit and the spirit wrestles against the flesh. And because there is a battle going on inside of us, Paul will say in Ephesians 6, 11 through 18, don't turn there. We don't have time for it. I'm just gonna paraphrase the whole thing. But it says, listen, there's a battle going on. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You don't wrestle against people. You don't wrestle against the U.S. government. You don't wrestle against the culture. He says, you wrestle against cosmic powers. 
You wrestle against spiritual forces. Therefore, he says, do what? Put on the full armor of God. Helmet of salvation. Breastplate of righteousness. Sword of what? Okay. Belt of truth. He says, shod your feet. Stand firm. Put on your football cleats because an onslaught is coming. Roman soldiers used to put homemade cleats on the bottoms of their sandals. Why? So that when the troops come at them, they don't move. That's the image he's trying to teach the church at Ephesus. There is a battle. Gear up. It's coming. And I think we look at that and go, oh, that's nice. We're like, we're going to hop out of bed and everything's just going to fall on us. Oh, there's the helmet and I'm just ready to go. He says, put it on. Put it on. Be ready. There is a battle that takes place every moment of every day inside of you. Every moment of every day, every second of every day, there's a battle inside you. Take it seriously. David said, I've cultivated, I've calmed, I've worked that into my life. And Ephesians 6 says, there's an enemy who does what? He's throwing fiery darts, looking for chinks in your armor, looking to take out another soldier. There's a spiritual battle. Do you spend as much time preparing yourself spiritually as you do every summer preparing for your fantasy football draft? Do you spend as much time disciplining yourself for godliness as you do disciplining yourself at the gym? Do you spend as much time meditating on truth as you do scrolling through your phones, which they now call doom scrolling, because it's to your doom, right? Like you wake up and one hour just went by as you look up from your phone. I ask these questions of you because these are questions I ask myself. I play fantasy football. I play it with my sons. I've got guys been up for 20 years and it's fun, it's enjoyable, but I've also been honest up here in the past where that's been a problem for me because my hope was in the outcome. It's fantasy, what am I hoping, what what's the problem? <laughs> but that's what I had to train my mind on. My hope was in the wrong places. You know, if you, the joke in my house is if you spend enough time with me talking, somehow CrossFit's coming up. <laughs> right? And that's convicted me because I should be talking more about Jesus than CrossFit. Right? You got to ask yourselves these questions. How are you using your time, your energy? The scriptures say redeem the time. Why? Day's evil. Use your time. Discipline yourself. These are questions I'm asking myself. You got your own questions. Are you prepared each day to face the day, to face your own sinful heart, to face the troubles of the day? Because Jesus says in Matthew 6, there's going to be trouble. He tells you right out of the chute, there's going to be trouble. But what's he say about the trouble? Don't worry about it. What's his solution? Seek first the kingdom of God. That's how you're supposed to deal with trouble. 
Seek first the kingdom of God. This kingdom is temporary. That doesn't mean your problems, your troubles aren't real. They're real. You're going through it. But what I'm saying is don't worry about it. I know what's going on. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom, he says. Seek first the kingdom, preparing your heart, your mind, your life for seeking and serving the kingdom of God because this kingdom is gone in the blink of an eye. It's gone. It's over. We do, we're not, this is going to be one of those clever bumper stickers, and I don't have one. We are not of this world. We are passing through. This is not our home. We're called to discipline ourselves for God. It's because we're going somewhere where that kind of rest is forever. But the scriptures say you can have it here in Christ at rest on the rock. Scriptures say discipline yourself to know that, to believe that, to have hope in that. David's focus here is a consistent cultivating of his heart leading to a quiet soul. David doesn't really then now list, well, everybody, here's how I did it. And the question I always get is, well, this is a nice psalm, Scott, but how did he get there? I don't know. It says he cultivated it. But we do know, verse 1 says, here's the result of it. Verse 1 says, he was a humble man before God, before others, and in the face of craziness going on in his life, he was humble before the providence of God. So I think we can draw some practical conclusions about some spiritual disciplines that are necessary to cultivate into our hearts. These things, these things are similar to the way David talks in other Psalms and the way other parts of Scripture speak. David would say about memorizing the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 9, he says, he asked the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? Then he answers the question. Verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. He was so concerned about what might happen that he memorized the word of God so that he would think the thoughts of God no matter what kinds of providence of God was going on in his life. So that the Spirit of God would grab hold of that truth and remind him of what's true. Paul will say the same thing in Colossians 3, 16, where he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Take seat in you. What are your greatest temptations? Find one or two verses that you can sow into your heart so you can cultivate your heart to respond in ways that honor Christ. In a similar vein, you can also meditate on the character of God, which is super. The attributes of God are wonderful. I teach through that, that series. I read the pink book, Attributes of God. We're teaching one right now, next door. The attributes of God, why? To get us as a people of God thinking about who God is. What's he like? Because he can be known. But David in Psalm 130, the Psalm just before this, when he's going through it and he's waiting for God to answer his prayers, he's reminding himself of what he knows is true about God. 
as he waits. Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 will do something very similar. In Lamentations 3, he is speaking about his hopelessness. He's looking at what's going on around him in the nation of Israel, and he's just blown away. These are God's people, and how is it God is allowing this to happen to these people? And then he says, I feel like you're just grinding me to the ground. And in verse 20 of Lamentations 3, he says, he says my soul continually remembers it. What? That, you're, that all this is going on. And my soul is bowed down within me. It's just crushed. I can't fathom what is happening. And then he says, but this I call to mind. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What's he call to mind? He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. What's he telling himself? It looks like your love has ceased. But here's what I know about you. It never ceases. So that's why he has hope. He says, his mercies never come to an end. Why does that matter for him in that moment? Because it feels like his mercies have concluded. Israel's done. He says, no, his mercies never come to an end. Then he says, great is your faithfulness. Even if I don't think your faithfulness is great right now, I know your faithfulness is great. Then he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Nothing changed, but what changed? The way he thought about God, about who God is, about God's faithfulness, about God's promise. Paul will say the same thing as in Philippians 4, 8 and 9. I'll just paraphrase it for sake of time where he talks about, listen, you're a mess. He says, he says so here's how you solve that problem. Whatever is right, whatever is good, whatever is excellent, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy. Think about those things. He says, think about those things. Not the things that are going on that you have no input over. Think about those things. And then he says, and the peace of God will be with you. Meditating on who God is and what he is like brings quiet to our souls. Prayer seems to go without saying, but listen, discipline of prayer more than just, I'm not belittling this because Nehemiah did the same thing. He'd walk in, shot up a prayer, and talk to the king. But too many of our prayers are just, you know, shooting one up here and there. It's sitting at the throne of grace, pouring out our hearts, our prayers, our needs, our desires before God. So many of the Psalms in here are David's prayers, just crying out to the Lord. Psalm 13 is one of those where he's just asking how long, how long, how long? But then he, David then talks to himself and he says, I have determined to just rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will sing praises about your steadfast love. No answers, but his prayers, he's just real, just praying. But then at the same time, determined to remember who God is within his prayers. Paul will tell the church at Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Prayer puts us at the throne of God. 
where in humility we're confessing our need for him in times of trouble. There's so many other suggestions that can be helpful. The intent here is just to provide you with some practical tools that key off of this psalm. This is all spiritual sweat, but it produces a quiet soul. I also want to remind us, and I think it's implied in this text, but it's not explicit, that David doesn't just discipline himself separated from his hope. There's a dependence in our discipline, right? There's a, there's a, sen- there's a sense in which Philippians 12, 2, 2, 12, where it says, discipline yourself, pardon me, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? There's work, there's cultivation going on. But Paul doesn't stop and put a period and move on to his next topic. There's a verse 13 after verse 12. It says, for it's God who is at work in you, causing you to will and to do, causing you, affecting the way you think and moving you along in action. But we are called to work, to cultivate, to discipline ourselves while we have our hope fixed on the Lord, knowing he's at work in us transforming us, changing us, and that he uses our cultivating of our hearts as we sow truth in, he waters, and he gives increase. If we don't remember that it's all connected to Christ, then it all becomes drudgery for us. Well, I just gotta read my Bible, I guess. That's not the way it's meant to be. We're to be connected to Christ John 15, five says, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's the vine, we're the branches. We need to remain connected to him. He is the life giver. Paul will say in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's not a sports slogan. It's our slogan. I can do all things through Christ, through Christ who strengthens me. That is keeping our eyes on Jesus, depending upon him for the grace we need to discipline ourselves because we have to discipline ourselves because this life is real and there's real stuff going on with all of us and we need Christ to help us and we need to discipline ourselves to be thinking God's thoughts after him as we work our way through this life. David then provides an illustration of what spiritual maturity looks like. He says it's that of a weaned child. He says, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Think really just briefly, it's really just a picture of contentment. A weaned child is content in her mother's arms, knowing, knowing she's loved, she's cared for, she's provided knowing that I don't have to worry about, is mom going to feed me? Knowing, yeah, she'll feed me when she's ready to feed me. She'll sit me down in my high chair next to my brothers and sisters, and I'll eat dinner. She's weak. She's content. She knows. But the child is actively knowing, actively remembering. It's okay. It's cool. Mom's going to feed me. It'll be fine. Right? Because there may be tension going on. I'm hungry. There's mom right there. But the weaned child knows it's okay. I'm okay. 
a contented trust in the Lord, right? It's a contented trust in the Lord. It's not a passive trust in the Lord. It's not let go, let God, like Tony spoke about last week. It's not que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, whatever. Say la vie. It's not that. It's an active trust, active belief, active engagement, knowing that God is who he says he is and contented in our circumstances because we know who God is and we know what he's like and we know we can trust him. We know we'll be cared for. The writer of Hebrews, in a sense, calls us to mature, to grow up. In Hebrews 6, 1, he says, listen, you gotta leave behind the elementary ways of thinking about the gospel, of thinking about Jesus. You gotta leave that behind. You've gotta grow, you've gotta mature. We must mature, how? Well, in part, cultivating truth into our hearts. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. So that's the process for a quiet soul. And lastly, and most briefly, hook number four. Um, it, it doesn't have a P in your outline. I couldn't think of a P. Um, so someone said, well, the P's silent, like pneumonia. Like, yeah, it's encouragement with a P. It's just silent. The encouragement from a quiet soul. David turns his focus to his audience, to his reader, to encourage them. Before it's, oh Lord, he's talking about what, he's, what his life is like. And then he says, oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He starts with Israel. He names the people of God. Israel. Psalm Isaiah 49, 16 says, God has written the names of his people on his hands. He knows you by name. He knows you by name. Some of us blow through the book of Numbers because just listing all these people, right? But listen, he knows every one of them by name, by name. He knows you by name, by name. He knows you. He knows your issues. He knows your problems. He knows you by name. He loves you. And David says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. But the same, the same focus for him was, my hope has been in the Lord, and here's what that looks like in my soul. He, he turns to Israel and says, hope in the Lord. God's call to you and me is to place our faith and our hope and our trust squarely on his shoulders. Squarely upon the rock. Anchoring our souls to him. And then David says, from this time forth and forevermore, now and forever. The gospel is the gospel of hope because the God of hope ministers to our hearts now. Right now, in real life, in real time. It's easy to see the gospel as, well, that gets me into heaven. Like, that's about eternity. But Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God now to transform you, to change you, to empower you, to help you, to comfort you, to energize you, to mature you. And then there's eternity. Paul will say if our hope is only in this world, then we're to be most pitiable of all people, but there's a hope for eternity. 
an eternity that's imperishable, undefiled, will never fade away, kept in heaven by the power of God. The eternity that David speaks about, he says, to be in your presence, O Lord, is the fullness of joy. There's a day coming when there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more troubles, there will be no more ripples in your soul. But that day is not today. It's not right now. Until then, we are to persevere in godliness, fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, knowing that all is well. All is well because you're in the hands of a loving Father. Now let me just, as a side note, if you're visiting with us today and you're not sure where you stand in the faith or if you're, you're not even a Christian, you just came because someone brought you along, let me tell you this. I said a lot about read your Bible, pray, meditate on God. That's not how you get into the kingdom. That's a result of being in the kingdom. How you get in the kingdom is looking to Jesus and recognizing that apart from him, you're lost and without hope. You humble yourself before him, you confess your need for him, he then assures you and promises you he will give you a new heart. He will make you a new creation. He will give you new desires. And it's then that you will begin cultivating this joy in your heart for the Lord. So I don't want you to leave you with thinking, just go read your Bible, clean yourself up, and come on back and everything's good. Look to Jesus, humble yourself before him, confess your need for him, and then walk humbly before him. Let me pray.